The law firm of Becker and Lindauer represent victims all over the state of Florida. All too often, insurance companies try to convince injured motorists, passengers, pedestrians, and other injured claimants to accept less than their case is worth. Whether it be a car crash, a trucking accident, a motorcycle wreck, a bicycle accident, or an injured pedestrian, it is imperative that you have legal representation to assist you. Becker and Lindauer are dedicated to putting their decades of legal experience to work for you. With proven results, Becker and Lindauer is ready to fight for you. With 45 years of combined experience in personal injury law, the team of Dave and Danielle are highly qualified and ready to help you. Call today for a free consultation, 941-567-6728. Again, area code 941-567-6728. Or visit Becker and Lindauer online at the website in the show notes. Tiki Hut Media. Pop the top on your favorite beer or whatever you drink from Tiki Hut Media. This is Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Hello, welcome in to another edition of Soul Ramblings Podcast. I'm Jerry, got my beer cracked open, and we're in week four. This coming Sunday is the fourth week of Advent, getting closer and closer to Christmas. And it's during this time every year we light candles as we prepare for the coming of Christ. More and more candles each and every week, more and more light as we watch and wait for Jesus, the light of the world. God of promise, come into our darkness. Renew your hope, your peace, your joy, and your love in us. For you alone bring life out of death. Receive God's promise of love from Psalm 36. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your judgments are like the great deep. You save humans and animals alike, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. All people may take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Our scripture reading for this fourth week of Advent is from the book of Micah, chapter 5. Verses 2 through 5, hear the word of the Lord. This is from the New Revised Standard Version. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth, then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall live secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. If the Assyrians come into our land and tread upon our soil, we will raise against them seven shepherds and eight installed as rulers. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. On this fourth week of Advent, we're talking about hope from small beginnings. The small size of Bethlehem reminds one of a common biblical theme. When God is about to do something great, 
Human estimates of status, size, power, and influence are completely irrelevant. In fact, God often deliberately chooses someone whom we would probably dismiss as the most unlikely candidate for carrying out God's mission. Now, because the minor prophets are not typically as well known as other areas of Scripture, it might be helpful to start with the historical setting of Micah. The name Micah, which means, who is like Yahweh, was a rather common name in the 8th century B.C., which is the time period we believe Micah was active in his ministry. There are those that believe Micah's prophetic ministry occurred during the reign of three kings in Judah, first Jotham, then Ahaz, and finally Hezekiah. Like Bethlehem, Micah came from a small town southwest of Jerusalem called Moresheth. I can't help but wonder if God's prophecy resonated with Micah as he too knew what it was like to come from humble origins. It's important to note the dynamics at work in this time that led to Micah's harsh prophecies as well as visions of hope for a people in great distress. The 8th century BC was a time of great turmoil as Israel's neighbor to the east, Assyria, grew in power. We know that Assyria destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel in 720 BC, which would probably have occurred during the latter part of Micah's ministry. The danger that pressed upon the northern kingdom would also threaten the very existence of Judah as well. Micah, a faithful prophet of the Lord, would call for trust to be placed in the mighty king of kings, Yahweh. But more often than not, the kings of Judah would pay large tributes to fend off their more powerful neighbors. These payments would often disproportionately impact the poor. Michael would pronounce God's judgment against the abuse of the poor in his prophecies. When we look at the book of Micah, the first three chapters are primarily judgment, in which ultimately the people of God are exiled to Babylon for a time. In chapters 4 and 5, however, this tone shifts to hope and salvation for those who remain faithful during the impending judgment of Judah for its turning away from God. Our text here in chapter 5 speaks more of the salvation where deliverance comes from the most unexpected place. The small size of Judah reminds one of a common biblical theme. This is exactly what Micah is getting at in chapter 5, where a leader from the house of David will ascend to the throne as king and ruler and whose leadership will bring glory to the Lord. The text says explicitly that ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. The majority of biblical scholars see this as a reference to the Davidic line. But could it not also be argued that there are layers of meaning here, that even if Micah was not aware of it, that this could be referring to the Son of God, who reigns eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit until the fullness of time, when he enters the world to bring peace and reconciliation with humanity? This text tells us he will come from lowly origins, that is, the small Judean town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem Ephratah was the smallest, most insignificant clan in Judah. Not only that, but the Hebrew word used to describe Bethlehem in this passage is described as not the regular word for little or small, but a word rarely used, a word that calls attention to the trifling or insignificant. And yet, it is from this smallest of clans that the Deliverer, who is much stronger than the paltry excuse for the contemporary kings of Judah, 
who cuts deals with their more powerful and worldly eyes, neighbors, particularly Assyria. This is one of the major themes in Micah, as it is in many of the prophets as well. That is, placing trust in military power and political alliances rather than the sovereign God who brought his people out of Egypt, who parted the Red Sea, who made the walls of Jericho fall. And yet, the kings of the time would rather pay enormous debts to their more powerful neighbors to keep them from attacking them. So the question is whether or not we are likely to trust our version of chariots over God's provision. This does need to be dealt with, and it's a good place to apply the text to our situation. Where are we trusting in ourselves and not in the Lord our God? Bethlehem is a compound word that means house of bread. It is a fitting place for Jesus, the Savior of the world, to be born, not just because of its ties to the house of David, which are significant enough, but also the foreshadowing of significant events that are to come in Jesus' earthly ministry. For he is the one who will be tempted in the desert to turn stones to bread, the one who will one day call himself the living bread, and the one who will use bread as a way to remind his disciples of his impending death. All of this is foreshadowed in his birth in this small, seemingly insignificant town, the house of bread, Bethlehem. Do we need to visit the house of bread this Advent season? Do we need to visit a place of peace where God demonstrates his provision for his people? What does this text teach us about the coming Savior who will rule over Israel? The text speaks of one who will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, according to verse 4. Describing Israel's rulers like shepherds goes back at least to the time of David, who I imagine felt that wrangling his elders was as difficult, if not more so, than wrangling sheep. For Micah, this idea of a shepherd served as a metaphor for a strong leader who would lead God's people, who would, as verse 4 says, live securely. That is, this leader would be one who would establish the country as a power not to be trifled with, whose people would experience peace and prosperity because of their leadership backed by Yahweh himself. But of course, what it looks like for Jesus to be a shepherd goes far deeper than a strong earthly king. Jesus is the good shepherd because he is willing to lead us to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. That peace is not merely an absence of war, of threats looming on the borders of Israel's land, but the shalom that comes from following the good shepherd the shepherd who provides the easy yoke that leads to a fullness of life with God and with our neighbors. I'm a bit of a documentary nerd. I like to watch documentaries. Beth, not so much. So when I have them on, she pretty much goes and finds something else to do. And I recently watched a documentary about the English language and how the old English is nothing like what we speak today. It was essentially the result of Germanic tribes moving to and invading parts of England and combining their language with the native tongue of the Britons. Anyhow, that isn't the point of the story. During this documentary, they started discussing the connection between our word for God and the word good. Not exactly a difficult connection to make, as they are separated by only a single letter. 
Probably like many of you, I had noticed that connection before, but never knew if that was an accidental similarity or something more significant. When these Germanic people began to worship the God of the Bible, they needed a word to describe him. They, of course, had proper names for all of their Germanic gods like Thor and so forth. But they didn't have a word that would ultimately work as a way of describing the God of the Old and New Testaments, the God revealed most fully in Jesus Christ. But as these people began to learn about the God of Scripture and God's inherent goodness, they decided to take a form of the word good and make it their word for God. In fact, the words are almost indistinguishable in both the early Germanic languages and modern languages like German, Dutch, English, from which they came. So there you go. When a group of people came to believe in God, the word that made the most sense to them was to use the word good. And our text describes such a God who would take on human flesh and would act as a good shepherd. What does it mean to follow the good shepherd? One of the themes that perhaps cannot be overstressed in terms of Jesus' ministry is this relationship between humility and strength. Like the passage from Philippians 2, there is a recognition of Jesus' humble origins, where Jesus takes the form of a slave or servant, but then ultimately is exalted where every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. As followers then of Jesus, it is our responsibility to demonstrate our strength through humility and servanthood. We are at our best when we recognize our place as humble servants of God, whose leadership and authority are to be stewarded for a season, never to be used for our own advantage, and never to be taken for granted. Our leadership and our authority are always provisional and can and should be taken from us if we ever lose sight of our place as those who witness to Christ. As John the Baptist says in John 3 verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. In some sense, it is as simple as that. We, as ministers of Christ, point to Jesus and say, this is what God looks like. Along those same lines, I find myself uncomfortable whenever I come across a ministry named after a person. For example, Jerry Wicker Ministries. Jerry Wicker doesn't have a ministry. I participate in Christ's ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the posture we need to continuously return to as we keep our egos at bay so that the gospel from humble origins can flourish. Offered to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. been telling you about my grandson Braxton, who is at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, receiving treatments for leukemia. And you can follow, I've had a lot of you ask how Braxton is doing and that you have let me know and uh, my family know that you are praying for Braxton. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and continue to pray for him. Wanted to give you an update. Here's what happened. My phone rings and it's my son. He tells me the greatest news I could ever hear. He said that all of the tests that Braxton had been undergoing over the past week showed no cancer. It is in remission. 
and going to find out the next steps he needs to take. He will still need to have uh, tests run continually and still be under some care. But the good news is, and we are celebrating this and we're praising God for it, Braxton, right now, as we sit right now, cancer-free, and that cancer is in remission. We are so thankful for the prayers and the outpouring of love and support, and we are thanking you all for your continued prayers. We are thankful for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and we'll continue to promote them and invite you to, if you find it in your heart and you you can, contribute to St. Jude in some way, uh, because we are, my family has been affected by the giving of others in the past by providing completely free care and wonderful, top-notch, world-class care to my grandson, Braxton. God is so good. Thank you, God, and thank you to each and every one of you. And we are cheering Braxton right now. Pack up your bags, get out the door. You don't get chemo anymore. You can keep up with Braxton's progress on the Facebook group, Braxton's Battle. There's a link to that in the show notes of the of this episode. So I invite you to click over there and then click like, and you can follow along with that. Braxton's Battle is our battle. We'll be right back after this short break. I never thought I would live to see St. Jude Hospital built. St. Jude was born of a long day. Hours after the crowds departed, one lonely car remained. Dr. Donald Pinkle, the hospital's first director and employee, had work to do. Young lives depended upon it. They said he was a fool. They said there was no hope. But St. Jude was built upon big dreams and a trailblazing spirit. There were discoveries to be made and lives to save. So he worked. Soon people worldwide joined the mission, lending their time, energies, and talents. Today, St. Jude is more than 4,700 employees strong. The lights never go off at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. The diseases that take our children from us ravage day and night. So we fight through the small hours of the morning, searching for the next innovation. We clean like a life depends upon it, because it does. We cook like we cook for our own families. We fix what is broken. We facilitate care for today and seek tomorrow's cures. And when the sun rises on the other side of the planet, we are there too. We take our mission around the globe because we believe that no child should die in the dawn of life, no matter where they call home. We are stronger together, and working together, we will create a new, brighter future. This is our mission. There is urgency to what we do, because this moment... Pack up your bags, get out the door, you don't get chemo anymore. This moment is why we are here. Go to stjude.org or click on the link in the show notes. 
This is the day God has given you. Of course, that doesn't mean you can't look forward to someday in the future and even prepare for it. But don't get so focused on the future you forget to live today. And don't get so overwhelmed by all the things you need to do so that all the joy is sucked out of today. Remember, there's always time for today. Always time to experience exactly the grace God knows you need. Always time to find the healing you're longing for. Always time to hug those you love and laugh with, those you cherish. Always time to spend time with God that will impact everything else you do. And always time to share Jesus' love by serving someone in need. So take the time to find that time today, and you will discover what it really means to live. Next week on Soul Ramblings Podcast, we'll have our Christmas episode. Invite you to join us then. I want to thank you for the gift and privilege of your time today. And if you would take an extra second wherever you're listening right now and click subscribe, you can also go to our Facebook and Instagram pages and get social with us. Go over there and like those pages. Links are in the show notes. Here's the last piece of advice for you if you believe in goodness and if you value the approval of God. Fix your minds on whatever is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and praiseworthy. I'm Jerry Wicker. Until next time on Soul Ramblings Podcast, grace, peace, cheers. cheers. Thanks for listening to Soul Ramblings with Jerry Wicker. Download new episodes every week. And if you haven't already, subscribe and be sure to leave us a rating and review. Soul Ramblings is a Tiki Hut Media production. Mm -hmm.